When is it unhealthy to like something too much? This week on Download This Show, Instagram likes. Famously, the image sharing service stopped showing people how many likes they had on their posts, citing concerns over mental health. But now, a backflip. Also, how to not get scammed when buying on the internet's newest and most confounding fad, why the messaging service WhatsApp is suing India, and Facebook did a good thing. No, there's there's no but there. They, they just did a good thing. And what it is very soon, this is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. And we're joined in the studio by Cam Wilson from Crikey. He is the Associate Editor Welcome. Hi, Mark. And also joining us uh, is Meg Coffey, social media strategist and the finest thing in Western Australia. That sounds weird. I don't know why I, I like said it, it like that. I like, like you know, it. <laughs> take that, quackers. It's Meg Coffey. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I want to talk about Instagram, right? For a period of time, Meg, they took away our like count. You couldn't see how, well, they didn't take it away for you. You could always see how many people liked your own things, but uh, they took it away for other people. You can see other people's like counts, but something has changed, Meg. What is it? I know. I don't like it at all. The like counts are back. All of a sudden you can actually see how many people think you're cool or not. And it's unnerving. Okay. Well, the good news is I've never been cool. So that's never been an issue for me. (laughs) Why did they take it away in the first place, Cam? Well, it was, I think it's just over, or just under two years ago, they said, we're going to take it away and, and see how that affects the user experience in terms of their mental health. You know, the thesis is that we have so many social pressures, right? And, and this is a way of quantifying it. And you can, you know, we already compare each other in the way that we look, in the way that we talk and act. And then to have another way to compare us to other people was going to affect how we felt about the platform and ourselves in the world. And when they did take it away initially, I remember talking, like I spoke to a couple of professional content creators or Instagram influencers and they said that it did take a bit of pressure off for them because at least for professionals, you know, they have to compare themselves to other people and this idea that they had this one, you know, metric number that got drilled down to that was used and and they constantly looked at it and then thought about that brought them stress. And so, you know, at the time I remember they they brought out, they said, we're going to do this and they tested in Australia first Mm. and then they rolled it out to the rest of the world about six months later and they said, from what we've seen, we think this works. And so that's why it isn't a notable decision, you know, now I think almost two years later to then say, well, we're actually going to turn that back. Right. So Meg, do you think the link between the light count and people's mental health as they, as it's impacted by social media, do you think they're related? Look, yes and no. I think that's the thing. For all the people that were freaking out about it, you can still see your likes. It's not like likes were completely taken away. It's just that that front facing. I don't know. I I honestly, I don't like that they're back. I can't believe it's been two years, but I'd gotten really accustomed to it. And I do think, I mean, I'm ever the optimist. So I do want to say that there is that link and and knowing that how many likes are there isn't going to influence your content or, you know, tell people that you're cool or not. So I, I can can see the line, but I don't think that that's why Instagram really did it because we know that they don't do things like that. No. So mm-hmm. why did they bring it back, Meg? 
Well, because they're saying that, you know, for those big creators, the one that Cam was talking about, that it did take the pressure off, that it actually was impacting them and it was impacting their bottom line and whether or not they can convert those likes. But then I just say, where's your media kit? Like if you're you're a serious influencer, show the people your likes. You can still get the statistics. You don't need it public facing. But I think, you know, they got pressure from the creators. It's all about it's all about advertising for Instagram. Let's be honest. Yeah, I think that's a tough one. And and I think the idea for non-professional creators is that if you want to express yourself, if you want to put stuff out there, do you want to have to worry about how well that stuff does that everyone else can see? And so the idea was to try and make it less of a like arms race. Can I, you know, see how many likes I can rack up compared to my friends? And look, we've kind of come to the point now where maybe we're deciding that to some extent, some people like that. Some people like the idea of trying to, I guess, like optimize their life to see how well they can do about that stuff and to to show that off. I've seen some people say that this decision shows that, you know, this this is ultimately a kind of failure or this is a walk back or a backflip or whatever. Mm. What they've actually done is they said, we will give you the option about whether you want to show it or not. And I actually think that's a really good and important decision. Mm. We know that these things affect people differently and these social media platforms are huge and all their rules have to apply to you know how many ever billion users they have what they should be doing is giving more people more choice so that people can decide how it affects them rather than having one rule for all their users being like you know what if i'm a professional influencer and i don't want this showing it doesn't have to like that that shouldn't affect it and if i do want it showing let me show it give people the option and, and ultimately that will hopefully make them happier But the whole per post, like changing it, like this post, I'm going to show you my likes, but this post I'm not. I don't know. It should either be all on or all off, not only showing the posts that perform well. Yeah, yeah. Look, look, I mean, look, it depends. You know, if, I'll give you a great example. Like, you know, if someone wants to post a piece of content that is a little bit off-brand for them, say they're a professional influencer who wants to take a political stand or they want to write about their family or something that's out of it, why shouldn't they be able to have the choice to take something off so that they're not judged by the metrics that the rest of their posts are judged? I think having that option is at least a good thing for the platform to give to users. Meg, the rationale that was put forward when they first made this decision was as discussed was about mental health. It was, uh, it was about, this is, you know, likely to alleviate some of the mental health challenges for people that live. And indeed, if we're talking about influencers work online, if we take that on face value, what do you think would make a difference? Like what are the sorts of things that you would change Meg about Instagram that would make a material difference to people's mental health? What's, what stands out to you? I'd just get rid of the whole platform. (laughs) (laughs) You're a social media strategist. I don't mean to remind you. Look, yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think taking those those visible metrics away that you can compare uh, was a good thing. You know, we heard stories of kids who would pull posts down if they didn't get enough likes. You know, if it, if it didn't get a minimum of 15 or 20 likes, or what was it, 10 to make the count actually show up, then kids would pull it down. Or you I mean, know, that's the self- me to be fair. Well, yeah, that's me too. If you don't like my dog, then the photo's going. Um, but that's where, you know, but that's where the people's Finstas and Rinstas came in. You had your real Insta, which was, you know, your your real you, and then your Finsta, which is what you wanted people to see. And I think, I don't think you can have it both ways. And so I think it was better to have, have those likes gone because then people can just post what they want and they, I don't know, I look at it differently. For me, Instagram, it's, it's a story of my life and I genuinely don't care if you like it or not. It's, I do social media for me, not not for other people. 
I think in many cases you're right, but I mean, I don't need to tell you, Megan, and everyone else that like, you know, people make their, their livelihood on this stuff as well. And so that's why we, we have this uncomfortable kind of cross section of like, people want to make apps that people want to use, but then these apps need to make money and people on these platforms need to make money as well. And, and often these end up kind of being business decisions. Mm. I think giving people choice and if you want to show it, show it. If not, Get rid of it. Well, Meg's now a social media strategist that only deals in LinkedIn and Bebo. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a niche, but she's cornered it. I Can't mean, wait to hear some broetry. <laughs> <laughs> Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests this week are social media strategist Meg Coffey, though only for LinkedIn and Bebo, and Cam Wilson, associate editor with Crikey. Mark. Still on Instagram. <laughs> Still on Instagram. Mark Fidel is my name and... NFTs have <laughs> taken over, certainly actually amongst other things, the art world. They are non-fungible tokens. Cam, before we get into the latest <laughs> news, I'm going to put the job of explaining what an NFT is on you. Sure. So an NFT is a unique digital item. And I mean, the best way to think of it is it is kind of like a little certificate that says you own something. You own this digital file. You're the only person that owns this. And so often like, you know, people will sell artworks, they'll sell music, they'll sell other things. And what you're really getting, the NFT, the actual object, is a little note that says, you own this, we can send you to go and see this object. So we can say, this is the certificate that you own this piece of art and we'll link you to where that art is on the internet. Mm, although literally everyone will still also be able to see that stuff on the internet. Exactly, exactly. And it's, you know, it's kind of like the, the same way that, you know, you can see the Mona Lisa anywhere you want, but only one person can own the Mona Lisa. Anyone can see your artwork, but you can say, I own this thing. So vast ways of the internet have started to monetize bits of internet ephemera. Uh, of course, this week, the viral video, Charlie Bit My Finger, uh, was sold <laughs> as an NFT. But as NFTs have risen, so too have scams. Meg, why are the sorts of places in which people are getting scammed? everywhere because it's a giant Ponzi scheme. <laughs> uh, look, it's it's fascinating because as, as Kim was saying, you get this little certificate that says that you own it, but the certificate in itself isn't actually something tangible. It's just a, it's a code that leads you to a URL or a destination where this thing lives. But all you have to do is misspell one letter or change the URL or pull it off the internet and you can no longer access it despite what that currency might say. So people are getting scammed because they think that they're buying something that, well, first of all, doesn't actually really exist except for on the internet. And then the technology behind it is so advanced that things are just disappearing with the change of a letter or the change of a URL. It's NFTs do my head in. I know they're the newest, biggest thing, but I just don't see how it's legit. Yeah, I think there's we can kind of separate the idea of NFTs into two categories. There's the technology and then there's how it's actually playing out at the moment. I think the technology is revolutionary. I think the idea of being able to say that you own and you have the copy of this thing is something that we will look back on and be like, this will actually be a big part of how we use the internet in the future. But how it's working at the moment I think we're in the very early days of the industry where we've got, you know, these like companies that have popped up 
offering you the ability to, you know, they're marketplaces. So they offer you the ability to show an NFT and then for you to buy it. And they have been kind of struck with problems. You know, they've, they've got things like, for instance, you may buy the NFT, but the person who's hosting it. So almost like that little, you know, the certificate says you can go here to see the thing where that address takes you, whoever's hosting that it's gone. And so, you know, what's happened is you've got to break down the systems. I think, you know, there's going to be all these growing pains and I, personally wouldn't really buy an nft at the moment i think that we will see this mature they will become more standard but it's kind of to be expected at the moment it's kind of it's going to be a bit shady and i do have faith that we'll figure out it sometime in the future but i don't think it's quite there yet meg you, you can't answer this next question with <laughs> don't do it <laughs> so my question to you is this how do you protect yourself like what are the things you would be looking out for as you venture out into this market that would protect you I would be looking at the legitimacy of the marketplace and what other things they host, what other things they sell, what other transactions they've held. I'd look at the exact type of currency that's being used, which version is it, you know, Dogecoin, is it Bitcoin? What is it that you're using to buy? Is it something brand new? In some of these scams, they are these, as, as Cam was saying, there are these new marketplaces that just sort of pop up and they say, this is where it's hosted. Do your research. Anyone that really wants to get invested. And look, I, I kind of agree. I think that this is a new technology that's interesting and we're in the early days. But if you are going to spend real money, money that you've worked hard to earn, do your research. Make sure that you understand where you're putting this money, what you're actually getting in return, and as much understanding of the legitimacy of the platform as possible. Cam? I'd probably just say don't spend anything you can't afford to lose. I think that um, we are in the wild or west at the moment mm -hmm. and I think that it's pretty speculative at the moment. So, you know, knowing that you may have, a, you might have a chance of getting a really interesting part of internet history, but but not really ho holding out for more than that. I mean, just on that point, there does seem to be, and it's weird to me a little bit because of the ephemeral nature of viral videos and, and uh, memes anyway, but... There's a huge market in people buying and selling internet memes as NFTs. So there's like the famous meme of the, the disaster girl. So you might have mm -hmm. seen this image on the internet of a, a house on fire and, and then in the foreground there's like what looks like a five or six-year-old girl looking slyly at the camera as though she <laughs> did it. And then, of course, I mentioned earlier, Charlie bit my finger, very famous viral video. Those things are being sold and netting enormous amounts of money. I think I still struggle to wrap my head around is like those memes aren't disappearing from the internet. You can still copy them and use them. It's just the idea of owning them is what's being sold. Why is it that internet memes in particular have, have generated such a market cam? I mean, I think it's because it's it's speculative and you can kind of get people interested in it. And, you know, it's almost like the natural domain for it. So people can see there's a lot of interest in it. And the idea is well, when you buy it, there'll be even more interest in it. And hopefully you can kind of flip it. I do think that I'm actually kind of happy about that a lot of internet memes are being sold as NFTs because there are all these parts of internet history that have been created by random people. They've had their image taken, remixed, you know, used in all other contexts, often commercialized by other people. But very often they don't get a cut of any of this. So, you know, this can go anything from the meme you're talking about to like, I saw the person who took that famous meme photo of Harambe, the gorilla who, who died. Actually, the five-year anniversary of his death was this week, RIP. Um, uh, the <laughs> The, someone sold the, the photographer who took that original original one sold that. It's a way of creators who've done something that's clearly, for whatever reason, struck a chord to be able to cash in. And ultimately, I think that's probably a, a good thing. 
I look, I totally agree. The girl that looks like she set her house on fire, she made enough money off that to actually buy a house. But selling Jack Dorsey's first tweet for like $3 million, <laughs> like seriously, I can print that out and put it on my wall. I don't, I don't get that. Totally agree on the creators getting credit and finally getting their due for it. But some of these things, I, I, I it, it's, yeah, I don't understand why you care enough to spend that kind of money. I'm picking up what you're both putting down a little bit here in the sense that like, you know, one of the things the internet did is the internet meant it was very easy to share things very fast and nobody for a long period of time, nobody made money. Mm. And, you know, obviously in the areas of movies and music, streaming services have become a mechanism with which things have been paid for. But there is this realm of like pure internet culture, right? Where, you know, internet memes and, and people who become viral videos, there's very little mechanism until now with which you can turn that into money. You can get something for that notoriety. And I I think it says something that NFTs have taken off in that space because it's almost like it's adjusting for all those years of not having money made from their likeness. Yeah, and and I think as as well like we're seeing what is worth money is so is becoming so detached from what is physical and and there's there's no like correlation anymore. What really matters is how much people are kind of hyping it up and how many people want to own the thing that you have. And with internet memes, like you know, that's one of the purest ways to kind of do that. You sell an idea and you can make money off it. And as long as people are in it, you can kind of well if I bought it for this much and then there'll be more excitement around it, people will probably want to buy it for more in the future or that they might or they might not, but people are clearly taking a chance on these. Meg, what would you sell on a, as, as an NFT? Which picture oh. of your dogs? <laughs> I don't know because there's just so many of them. They're not unique. I don't know. The you pictures can... of the dogs. <laughs> the pictures. Oh, uh, look, probably, maybe my t- one of my tweets that went viral. I don't. Nobody wants to pay. I don't know. It's just. Oh, I yeah. I don't. It, this this whole thing just bewilders me. It's people with far too much money that have made it in interesting ways that are willing to lose it. Yeah, I don't get it. Cam, what what are you NFTing? Um, oh, it's not a verb. I don't no, know why I no, describe no. it. Like <laughs> I'm sure it is. Uh, I don't know. Probably a picture of me with my fiance, and hopefully Aww. that lasts as long as an NFT does. Aww. One of the good ones, Aww. not one of the bad ones. <laughs> oh, I'm dying on the inside. <laughs> we agreed that I have no soul, and you shouldn't make me feel things. <laughs> I think I found something in there. <laughs> oh, damn it. <laughs> Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media technology culture. We have Meg Coffey, social media strategist, and Cam Wilson, associate editor for Crikey and Man That Fluttered My Dead Cold Soul. (laughs) And (laughs) Facebook have done something actually kind of interesting. They're going to diminish the influence of people that share misinformation, Cam. What exactly are they talking about doing? Yeah, so for a while they've had the fact-checking feature, which is where they look at some posts that are going often quite viral on the platform and they'll get an independent third party to say, is this legit or not? And if it's not legit, they will attach a little disclaimer and they will also start to restrict the amount of people it's shown to. So, you know, Facebook at the moment use an algorithm to show content to people and the more people are interested in it, the more people show it to. What they'll do is they say, well, this is false, so we're going to show it to fewer people. Their most recent announcement is that not only will they, when they decide something is false, limit who it's shown to, they will also in the future kind of slow down how the rest of your posts do. So they will show the rest of your posts to fewer people as well. So in a way, it's kind of saying that, well, if you're posting 
stuff that's wrong, we don't think you're super credible and we're going to ping you for that. So it's a way of giving people who are repeated offenders uh, less ability to reach people and, and kind of also, I guess, attaching a price for sharing stuff that's dodgy. So get ready to see a lot less of Uncle Pete. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm thinking about my uncle's sharing stuff and I'm like, actually, that would be a good thing. <laughs> so Meg, uh, good idea, bad idea. I think it's brilliant. I uh, I have a distant relative that I checked out the other day and like every third post is, you know, fake information. So I think the less I have to see of that, the better. <laughs> I think I think it's really good, to be honest. Why are we amplifying the people that are not sharing the right stuff? I think one of the things that I found fascinating about this, and because I actually agree, and I know that's like a running joke that we constantly ping <laughs> Facebook for <laughs> terrible decisions, but I, I actually think this is great. And one of the things I think is really kind of astute about it is Often the people that share the most misinformation in my limited personal experience, they tend to have the highest engagement because it, it usually follows with a great big conversation underneath about, is this right? Is this wrong? And and that actually, at least it used to in EdgeRank, count as uh, driving up people's engagement, which meant they got seen more. And this is an interesting function that is sort of designed to neuter or counteract that. And so in some ways, it's, it's building a mechanism into the platform that deals with the sort of the inbuilt psychology of of kind of how it worked in the first place. It's kind of, it's quite clever. I'll give Facebook a whack as, as is tradition. Thank you. <laughs> what took so long? I mean, like the way, so for my job, I, I often, you know, go through these reams of, of misinformation from people who I see all the time sharing uh, what is, uh, it's bull. It, it's, it's not legit. It's frustrating because you see the same people putting out like lies and then, you know, Facebook's algorithm just says, oh, like you were bad this time, but like I'm not going to count against you for the rest of the time. And so for years and years, you know, people including like, uh, you know, MPs like Craig Kelly who have repeatedly shared misinformation, they will share uh, lies and then see no penalty for it. I don't know what took them so long. If you're the person being banned, can you see? I know you do see when your posts are fact-checked. So you get a little, you get a notification and it's on your post and you can see that as well. So all the time you see people who are sharing misinformation are complaining about being censored by Facebook. And so I imagine this will be um, no difference. And in fact, many of the people who uh, have not seen this penalty in the past have actually claimed that they're being, you know, shadow banned by Facebook and they're being downranked anyway. So I think Facebook is already being blamed for it. (laughs) Now that's being like, well, we might as well do it. Where does all the fact-checking happen, Cam? So Facebook has a group of independent partners and then they have a special kind of screen and they can see things that are going viral on Facebook and then they can kind of go through and fact-check it. They'll write up an article being like, this is wrong, this is wrong, based on this, this and this, and they'll submit it to Facebook, who approves it, and then then Facebook goes and then attaches that to the post. Right. Is there a sense of whether or not that's keeping up? Because it's been a huge challenge over the last few years. I know they've sort of scaled up with their fact-checking, but do you think they're keeping up at the moment? No. (laughs) 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 Usually I uh, I equivocate over stuff because I don't want to take sides, but I mean, it's abundantly clear that there's just so much stuff out there. I don't think anyone could look at this stuff and be like, Facebook is on top of it. We all accept that our feeds are are full of, of all this stuff and we kind of just, you know, like, oh, that's how it is now. Yeah, they're not on top of it. I mean, they're not. They they say that they are. They say that they're hiring more people. That they're they're making a concert effort into to trying to fix it. But as Cam said, we all know that that stuff slips through, and more stuff slips through. I'd say than gets caught. What's the next step, Meg? Now that we've generally agreed that this has been a good move, what is the next step you'd like to see Facebook do? 
We all quit Facebook. <laughs> I'm sensing a theme developing with you, Meg. And I feel like you haven't thought through what happens at the end of this. When we quit Instagram and we quit Facebook and we quit all the rest of it, what do you reckon happens to the social media strategists? Yeah, I don't have a job. Um, no, look, I think Think of that- the dogs. <laughs> think of the dogs. Um, look, I do... I social media can be so good and it can connect so many people and it can bring a voice to so many amazing, wonderful things that might not have had a voice before. And that is that optimist in me going, social media is a great place and it's full of wonderful conversations. But there is that nefarious aspect to it. There are the people that are doing things wrong. And I think that if Facebook is serious about this, and I mean by that the Facebook family of apps, they do need to hire more people and they do need to make, you know, mental health of their users a priority and fake news a priority and, you know, getting rid of the the fake accounts and the false advertising. They really need to reinvest in their product and figure out what it is that they stand for. Otherwise, they're just going to be a place of, they're going to be the bad place. <laughs> and finally here on Download This Show, uh, WhatsApp is suing India over new internet rules. Meg, why are they doing that? Well, because India is saying that you need to tell us details about your users. You need to uh, relax some of the privacy issues. But the thing about WhatsApp and the reason that people like it is because by using it, you are protecting your privacy. And they want to make sure that they're standing by their users and, and supporting them when they said, if you use our platform, we'll, we'll protect what you say. And this is one of those really fascinating internet challenges where the internet is obviously sort of rooted in, a, and I guess for lack of a better term, a very Western American idea of, of freedom and privacy, which just doesn't necessarily fly in certain kind of governments and cultures, Cam, so who will win? Yeah, that's a tough question. We're seeing, in some situations, we're seeing these often American companies kind of give in to sometimes, you know, authoritarian regimes. I mean, the great example is Apple. There was an expose that came out in the New York Times recently about how they had given up a lot of the security benefits given to their users for their Chinese users. And that was the price of doing commerce over there. In this case, I don't know, I'm not a legal expert and don't know how the legal, like the case will go, but we've seen that, you know, they will try and push back. But, you know, in Australia, we have a law that allows the country to force companies to make back doors into stuff if they want to. And Silicon Valley companies said they wouldn't come here. And, you know, Facebook and all these other places said, we don't want to, we don't want this, but they're still here. It's not hugely used. And I don't know the intricate details of this thing, but we are seeing these countries really clash heads with big tech companies now because, I mean, it used to be that countries were always more powerful than tech companies. And now I think that balance is, it's a little bit closer to even. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you say that because like, there are a whole bunch of things that like, yeah, I'm glad you brought up Australia because there are a bunch of rules in Australia that fly in the face of, you know, fundamental principles of, of tech companies and they're still here. And let's be honest, we're a tiny, not very important country in the grand scheme of things. India, very big, <laughs> like lots and lots and lots of internet users. I mean, if they're going, if, if they'll change their rules for Australia, they'll change their rules for, for India, surely, Meg. It really is an interesting one. I think it's going to come down to what the users want and, and the way that the users rise up. And if if the, I mean, the users will, will talk and if they're not happy with what's happening, they'll stop using the platforms. If we hope, we feel that if, you know, if you can't trust WhatsApp, then people will leave WhatsApp. And then WhatsApp and Facebook will go, whoa, 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 wait a second, we need your data. So we will uh, we'll do what we can to keep you. 
It's interesting that this is an issue with WhatsApp. Has it affected other sort of equivalents services like Signal Cam? They, I know India has banned a lot of apps, including TikTok. You still can't actually use that. Um, and I think that was over Chinese national security uh, yeah, like ownership yeah. stuff. But, you know, they have in the past banned apps and they'll do it again. I think it's 400 million WhatsApp users are in India. It is a massive market for WhatsApp, but it's also a massive, a major form of communications for people in India. I think that's why this is kind of getting all the scrutiny. The government over there has been really cracking down on internet speech, and this is kind of the latest extension with it. WhatsApp is actually saying, well, we actually can't technically do what you want us to do. We are end-to-end encrypted. We can't do anything about that. I don't know how this will play out. Like I said, they're just trying to challenge the wall before it first goes in. Who knows whether they'll comply or not. All right, well, we'll wait and see. Cam Wilson, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thanks. And Meg Coffey, thank you so much for doing Download This Show. Uh, always a pleasure. Meg Coffey is a social media strategist and Cam Wilson is associate editor with Crikey. If you enjoyed the show, uh, leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to be encountering us on. <laughs> there had to be a simpler way of saying that. With that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.